Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Daniel Gallagher um, is senior lecturer in Latin at Cornell University. He has served under uh, Pope Benedict XVI and also Pope Francis during his 10 years uh, at the Vatican Secretariat of State. And he's never forgotten the surprise news he received in February of 2013, which is that Pope Benedict was resigning. Daniel, good to have you with me. Thanks. Al, it's great to be with you and your audience. Uh, Many people may not remember, but he actually delivered his resignation in Latin. Is that right? That is correct. It was a Latin text that he had prepared privately, and because of the sensitivity and the monumental decision he had made, he had to be very careful that there was no possibility of a leak to the general public or the media. And so he kept it to himself until he actually delivered it. And that made it a surprise to everyone involved, except for perhaps, I'd say, two very close collaborators who I know were aware of the text and his intention that he expressed that day. Wow. Uh, As you know, and you've written about it in in Crisis magazine, uh, since his, from the time of his resignation forward, there have been those who seem to think that These are even people who had high regard for Pope Benedict XVI, and yet when it comes to believing him as to why he resigned, they're suspicious. I'm not sure why, but uh, it's always struck me that his resignation reasons made sense. Um, Is there any intrigue here that we're missing? No, Al, I assure you and the audience that there was no intrigue. There was, and it's well known, There were controversial moments, moments of great sadness for Pope Benedict during his reign. Mm -hmm. There were breaches of confidentiality, a break of loyalty, release of documents. Mm -hmm. Those things did happen, and they were justly prosecuted, but they hurt Pope Benedict at the time. And to say that they were not perhaps part of the weight that he was feeling because of his advanced age and his infirm health, that he said were the main reasons for his resignation, they had to have played some role in the weight that he was feeling. Mm -hmm. And so um, that is true. Um, One other thing I can add is that, and this also is is fairly well known because it was stated by his Secretary of State at the time, Secretary of State, uh, after his resignation, the timing of the resignation had something to do with the World Youth Day, which was coming up in um, in Brazil. Okay. And Pope Benedict really felt as if he was at the end of his strength to make such a journey. Yeah. And he already proved to the world that he was willing to make lots of trips, and he did. He traveled more than anybody would have expected him to, all over the world. Right. But that would have been a particularly difficult trip for him to make, and that, too, had something to do with not the final decision to resign, but the timing yeah. of his decision to resign. Yeah. Archbishop Gunswine has said that he had come through a very uh, taxing trip to Mexico and Cuba, uh, and that may have helped uh, signal to him whether he had the stamina for the future or not. Right. Yeah. That's right, yes. And one other trip which is significant because of the distance was when he traveled to Australia. Yeah. And there he made the very wise decision after there was extensive consultation both amongst the staff there where I was the Secretary of State and local authorities in Australia, that he would take almost a week, uh, several days, to rest and prepare for the celebrations there of World Youth Day. 
Um, and he did that, and that really worked. That really worked. But that cannot be something done every time. Um, right, right. To, to have that kind of a, um, a so to speak, uh, it's not a disappearance, but it's basically just a small retreat before he has to engage in those large public affairs. So once was, was fine, but that couldn't really have become a habit in his journey. Uh, how smooth was the transition uh, between Benedict and Francis? Well, I can assure you it was smoother than anybody would have expected. Okay. It was unprecedented. There was confusion. Again, it was a surprise for his collaborators in the Secretary of State, including myself at that time. Um, but we were assured right after the announcement that he had pondered this decision extremely carefully over a long period of time. He had consulted the, uh, his closest friends and some of the most outstanding canon lawyers to assure that a transition could take place. He had already alluded, in fact, to that consultation and interviews prior to his announcement that he intended to resign. So we were assured that this was not a, uh, a spontaneous, um, unpondered, so to speak, decision. Um, and we relied on that, on his own confidence, and his confidence, which was a matter of faith and conscience, yeah. mm-hmm. that he knew he was making the right decision. Yes. So we felt that. We felt that, that he knew it was the right decision, and we knew that the Church, as always, would carry through, and the Holy Spirit would guide us. I mean, the Church in history has been through much more difficult transitions than that one, <laughs> yes. much more difficult. Yeah. So uh, in that comparison, it uh, it was... But for all of its difficulties, I won't, um, I won't deny that there were moments of tension and contention and disagreement and, um, uh, and also uncertainty. But through it all, it was much smoother than I think most people would have expected. You worked for both men, Benedict XVI and, and Pope Francis. And, uh, you know, there's this, there's this enduring image, although I, actually I, I think it's softened a little bit looking at the obituaries. Uh, mainstream press obituaries, but but generally the image was that uh, Pope Benedict was the hardliner, the God's Rottweiler. He's the disciplinarian. He's rather grim. He's can, he's uh, interested in abstract principles and doctrines. And then there's Pope Francis, who is warm, uh, accepting, uh, going the extra mile, uh, smiling. Those images make any sense? In your experience? Really, um, only to the extent that those might be perceptions at times publicly. But quite honestly, even in public appearances and certainly in day-to-day work, I would dare say that those characterizations are almost reversed. (laughs) In other words, that Pope Benedict, in more intimate private settings, had a wonderful sense of humor and also a very quick laugh, and an infectious laugh. When he started to laugh, um, those in the room would start to laugh as well. Um, he was a very simple man for all of his deep intellect and, um, and very deep faith. And um, so that's a side of Benedict that did come out sometimes in public, but uh, certainly the characterization of him, Benedict, that we would find in a very entertaining, I have to admit, series, um, or the, the movie The Two Popes yeah. on Netflix, um, that was great entertainment, but the furthest thing from the truth that you can imagine. Okay. Now, Francis, on the other hand, um, certainly there's a feeling of, at, uh, of ease and familiarity when, when you are in his presence and when I was in his presence. Mm-hmm. But, and this is in no way to, um, to criticize his style of governance, but I would say 
that compared to Pope, the late Pope Benedict XVI, it was Francis who could have that stern look, um, a bit of stubbornness. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say, again, that that was bad, but that would be probably perhaps even more surprising to people, that Pope Francis was the one that I would, in some ways, be more prone to characterize as a stern, um, sometimes uh, rather... Um, let's say it's certainly stubborn isn't quite the right word, but determined, determined personality. Sure. Francis is, uh, does have that. Let me just add one thing. Yeah. That I never worked for him, but I knew I had met Pope John Paul II, and I worked with people who had worked with him for his long reign of, of, as, as pontiff. And he, too, a great saint, um, could be very determined <laughs> and unwavering in his principles. Yep. And then, again, that's not a fault uh, necessarily. It has right. to be something that all of us, I think, have to keep in check. But there's actually a similarity, strangely enough, I would say, between Francis and St. Paul, uh, John Paul II in that regard. Well, after the first year of Pope Francis's uh, reign, it became clear that uh, many uh, Catholics who were very interested in the way the Church works were almost dividing themselves up between Ratzingerians and Bergolians. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see that from Rome? Um, we did a little bit, um, but perhaps in a different way. Um, and I could say it, uh, I put it in these terms, perhaps. Um, there was a lot of discussion and some disagreement on what was necessary after the reign of Pope Benedict XVI. Mm-hmm. Each moment in history of the Church requires different skills, different gifts, even a different personality. Sure. And I would say that when Pope Benedict XVI resigned... Um, perhaps unlike other moments in history, there was not a, a, a unanimity as far as what was needed. Mm, now, okay. my personal belief, and I can say this as someone having been there and prayed through this and having welcomed Pope Francis when he was elected, the ways of the Holy Spirit in choosing the successor to Peter are mysterious. Mm-hmm. And I am wholly convinced that for all the controversy that Pope Francis has caused, mm-hmm. Um, and for the, the criticisms that have been directed against him, um, I personally, uh, and this is someone who's you know experienced having experienced working with both of them, I trust that it is ultimately the Lord who is in charge yeah. of the church. Um, for as important as the papal figure is, and I say that as someone who myself, both while I was there and um, and after I left the service of the of the Vatican Secretary of State as someone who did disagree yeah. with Pope Francis sure. and was in a state of consternation about some of the decisions that were made. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. No, I appreciate that. It seems to me that's a mature Catholic approach uh, to Christ's um, uh, lordship uh, over uh, both mm. the Church and the world. So, no, I, I understand yeah. that. Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you a question about Latin, if you don't mind. And it's not, sure. um, it's not necessarily directed towards liturgical issues. But what is the place of Latin in the church's life? Is it is there is there does it have an official status? What is it? Yes. Good question now. Um it does. It's still the official language of the church and for good reasons and um for a list of reasons that I could synthesize perhaps in this regard. It has both a horizontal and a vertical dimension of uniting the Church. The horizontal dimension is that 
it is everybody's language and nobody's language. If the church <laughs> were to adopt a vernacular language, a modern language, we can all imagine the problems that it might uh, that it might uh, cause yeah. by favoring uh, a single um, language-speaking group in the world. So yeah. that's the horizontal dimension. Muslims have that problem with Arabic. So yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the, vertical, uh, the, the vertical dimension is that it puts us in conversation with the history of the church and with all the saints who preceded us, yeah. and that's extremely important. We can sit down and talk with Augustine and Jerome and Aquinas and Abelard and uh, all of these figures who, not all of them were necessarily saints, but important figures. Right, and we've got their language more precise for the sake of Latin. Thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciated it. Al, it was a pleasure to be with you and with your